This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Natasha Froze and I'm joined by Katie Balls and Stephen Bush is with us today. Special guest. Hello. Stephen, Jeremy Hunt last night said that Labour's economic plan is fundamentally dishonest. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, of course. Uh, Damn, I mean, it's, it's a podcast yeah, over. I mean, okay, yeah, we'll the, go home. It's a very short shot yeah. today. <laughs> the, 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 look, the thing which is fascinating about both parties, and indeed the thing which is bold about it as a strategy from Jeremy Hunt's perspective, is that it's it's dishonest, and he knows that better than most because the spending plans they're pledging to follow are his. Which again, if you, I mean, look, essentially the way that Jeremy Hunt makes uh, his numbers add up are you have to believe two things. One, that in the April, or April, May, or February, whenever the, next, the the budget ends up being, but in the budget next year, they will, for the first time uh, in more than a decade, end the fuel duty freeze. Now, look, if any listeners to your podcast believe that the fuel duty freeze is going to end a couple of months before the next election, I am willing to personally bet any reader a bottle of good champagne, right? An each way way bet, because that is how confident I am that unless Jeremy Hunt is like a Labour sleeper agent, there is no way he or any chancellor would ever do that, right? So right there, that eats all of his headroom. But in any case, his numbers are predicated on the idea that at the end of the forecast, you have these very, very sharp cuts to public spending, which visibly aren't going to happen, regardless of who wins the next election. The Labour Party is basically saying, oh yeah, no, not, not only will we stick to these spending limits, but, but we'll somehow have more spending. And you're like, well, cool, where's that, where's that going to come from, lads? So I think... Partly because, you know, given what Jeremy Hunt inherited as Chancellor and what Rishi Sunak inherited as Prime Minister, they, in my view, they don't have any election-winning strategies available to them. They do have, have a bunch of defeat-minimising strategies. And I think it is therefore politically astute to essentially lean into the fact that Conservatives' numbers don't add up, Labour's numbers don't add up, but really the thing that will actually matter to the country is not how the Conservatives would resolve their problem, because it's not their problem. Um, well, it's not going to be their problem in, in 14 months or however long it is now. But to go, OK, well, what's Labour going to do? It's not going to be more borrowing, simply because I don't see how global economic conditions are going to change to make that a, an, an easy option, particularly for day-to-day spending. It's obviously not going to be spending cuts, as anyone who's met more than one Labour MP could tell you. There's there's no prospect that the Labour Party will... I mean, the Conservatives haven't been able to deliver serious cuts since 2016, basically for half of the Parliament. There's no way the Labour Party is going to be able to do that. So it will obviously have to be tax rises. And Labour... I think some people in Labour are in denial about that. Some people in Labour are very aware of that and don't want to talk about it until after the election. Some people in Labour Party are very aware of it and think they should front it up so they don't get into difficulty on the other side of the election. Uh, And so it's a very sensible bruise for Jeremy Hunt to try and punch politically. Katie, how can Labour respond to this? So I think it's a tricky one because actually, as as Stephen says, it is an area where I think even within Labour, 
for example, you look at the 28 billion, they've already had to delay that. I think within the Labour Party, it is almost, you know, what happens to that now is a bit of a window into some of the tensions around spending. Um, now, there are reports saying, oh, it could go, it could be, you know, reduced further. And then you have, uh, you know, Labour politicians out in the area saying, no, it's you know, going to be in the manifesto. Of course, there's a question of Rachel Reeves's fiscal rules and what is possible once you're there. But I think in terms of what is actually going to be in that Labour manifesto, spending commitments, promises of tax cuts, the autumn statement, I think, for from the perspective of Labour, was not a particularly enjoyable event. Um, obviously, in a way, it wouldn't be because it's when the government get to call the shots. But if you see your opponent make a mistake, which I think they, you know, for example, I think Labour hoped they would do inheritance tax, um, even though... There are still some in the Tory party who want to do inheritance tax, perhaps including the Chancellor ahead of the next election. I think that they thought, well, that you know, that's something we will actually oppose. That's something we think we can, you know, have this narrative against the Tory party of, you know, they had one opportunity to cut taxes and they chose inheritance tax. Instead, there's an awesome statement that actually has landed okay. And speaking to Labour figures, I think there is a view, you know, full expensing. That's something which Rachel Reeves thinks is pretty sensible. Annalise Dodds, interestingly, you know, what came before full expensing was the super deduction. Annalise Dodds opposed that when she was shadow chancellor. And um, so I think it does show you how Labour has changed in terms of what it's saying to business now. You know, Rachel Reeves wooing a business. And then national insurance is something which uh, Labour can way say, I told you so, because they always oppose the national insurance hike under Rishi Sunak. But it means you've got two measures they broadly accept and they think it's landed fairly well with the framing of working people. And therefore, you have a situation where there's not much to attack, I think, from their perspective, and you haven't really seen much attacking. And what can, you know, Rachel Reeves really say and do ahead of the election? Because she doesn't want to spend money that she doesn't know she's going to have. She's having to turn down lots of spending requests. Obviously, it's heating up ahead of the manifesto. And you have Labour just trying to return to that point of, you know, do you feel better off than you did 13 years ago? I think that if you do get more tax cuts from the Tories, that does put Rachel Reeves in an awkward position, depending on what they are, because they are immediately under pressure to, again, to respond to it and to play to the Tories' tune. So it's eating up the headroom that might not even really be there if you do accept them and if you don't then you risk obviously you know having to front up what you would be spending the money on instead and lastly Stephen we have Matt Hancock's turn in the Covid inquiry today and I think a lot of people before have been labelling him as a liar when it comes to them giving their evidence do you think Matt Hancock can come back from such reputation no 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 I'm 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 very doing, decisive today. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing this thing where I do very succinct answers and then very, very long, uh, very long follow-ups. No, I, I think for two reasons. One, the witnesses in the COVID inquiry have disagreed on many, many things. They've all agreed on, on, on one particular thing. But I think more importantly, for the same reason that the inquiry is not, you know, many things are contributing to the government's opinion poll rating, but the COVID inquiry is not one of them. And I actually think if you look back at the history of disease and pandemic, and indeed when we think about individuals' experiences of when they're seriously ill, people often don't want to think about it afterwards. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the COVID coverage you know, is not is clearly not catching fire, right? When you go on the BBC website, which I think is always a good test of this kind of thing, because you shouldn't forget 
70% of UK adults get most of their news via the BBC. It's not troubling the most read. Um, and I think that is because people do not want to think about that period. Matt Hancock's reputation, I think, was kind of set the moment that he was found to be um, having an affair in a period when others were locked down. Um, it's also a timing thing, though, as well, with like the Israel-Palestine conflict. There's yeah. so many other big stories taking... Sort of, if, had it been at a different time, maybe this would have been a bigger story. Yeah, I think if it had been at a different time, we would be talking about it for want of anything better. But I think, I think in terms of the kind of the country's response, I think because the period of the pandemic was, you know, whether you were ill or whether you were locked down in a small flat or you were locked down far from people who were, you know, who were themselves ill or whatever, because it was, uh, it was not a great time for most people. I think then the reluctance to revisit it will kind is, you know, it's part of why it's not, you know, it's not hurting Rishi's reputation with um, people who were pro-lockdown. It's not helping him with people who are anti it. And ditto, Matt Hancock's reputation was sunk a long time ago. I also think a lot of the evidence so far just is not that illuminating in the sense it is just confirming many of the stories. Obviously, there are some new details, but a lot of it was reported at the, at the time. I think you're actually seeing that lots of the political reporting of the pandemic, of who disliked who, where the splits were, was pretty accurate. Is that the most interesting thing right now, looking ahead to the next pandemic? I'm just not sure it is. So it's not that surprising. And also, it's not as low, I think, when you think of the original question, which is how can you be you know, better prepared for future pandemics? I don't think knowing that Dominic Cummings didn't like Matt Hancock is telling us that much about the next pandemic. It's potentially telling us something which is quite universal and clear which is in any workplace it's best to not have people who completely hate one another it can cause issues if you don't think someone's competent in their job you probably shouldn't have them in place those are all things that you can see from this is that what we should be getting from the covid inquiry it just feels a little bit more as in the often you know a bit more like a bitch fest excuse the language as opposed to something more serious and I think that you can tell that I think that's a growing view of it actually and the fact that you've had Judge Hallett almost respond to this week and I think responding to some of this criticism saying I think it is actually relevant these you know whatsapps it's not because we're just trying to get all these things we're getting a sense of the decision making and there is an argument to that but it feels that as a dominant part of it so far and that I think is another reason why it's just not having the impact it could. Thank you, Katie. Thank you, Stephen, for joining us. And thanks for listening.